Welcome to Spin It, where the worst of times can become the best of times. I'm your host, Stephanie Malik, an award-winning crisis management expert and business consulting strategist. Along with my team of experts at S. Malik Enterprises, I have worked with thousands of high-wealth individuals and businesses over the last 25 years to create customized approaches for crisis management and business consulting to ensure they take their careers, relationships, and companies to the next level. On Spin It, we pursue purpose and passion, aspiring to uncover the true story behind every guest's successes and failures, removing the mystique behind what it takes to be truly successful from those that have actually done it. I'm chatting with executives and entrepreneurs all over the globe to understand how they turned obstacles into opportunities to grow not only themselves, but their businesses. I want to impact and inspire you and as many people as possible, not by blurting out the same old motivational phrases, but with the truth and authenticity behind real success, along with the roadmaps and methodologies it takes to get there. Whether it was a scandal, a broken business model, or simply navigating the noise, we want you to learn from our mistakes. It's all in how you spin it. Today, I'm speaking with Alex Carter. Alex is a clinical professor of law and director of the Mediation Clinic at the Columbia Law School. Her historic best-selling book, Ask for More, 10 Questions to Negotiate Anything, is available at all great booksellers near you. Today, Alex shares how she overcame her childhood struggles with asthma to become an educator, lawyer, world-renowned negotiator, and best-selling author. We take a deep dive into what it means to cut through the static and find the noise, how to overcome our most personal demons, and how to trailblaze new paths for ourselves. I'm so excited to have Alex on the show. Hey, Alex, thank you so much for joining. Welcome to the show. Hey, Stephanie, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. So as you know, the show is about turning obstacles into opportunities, and there are one or two that you've gone through that I'd like to cover with you. (laughs) (laughs) Which ones are we going to choose? I know, right? Yeah, I think it's just really amazing that you're on the show and that you're willing to, um, to kind of walk people through your journey. One of the biggest reasons why I started the show was I wanted a different voice. I didn't want to jump into already very noisy and populated podcasting and kind of everything else and not be super real and authentic and add just an extreme amount of value. So when I selected you and you said yes, I was very excited, especially based on your incredible negotiation skills. Thank you. Thank you. You're most welcome. So I wanted to start off with, you grew up in Long Island and you had a very, very difficult struggle with asthma. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, wow. And I I have to say, Stephanie, I haven't covered this on any other podcast to my knowledge. So this is exciting. Yeah, so, you know, one of my earliest childhood memories was sitting on the edge of my parents' bed and my mother was with me, and I couldn't catch my breath. And it was so scary, you know, especially for a little kid, you don't fully understand what was going on. I think I was only three at the time. And what we discovered was that I had pretty severe asthma, like my dad. And it just was one of these things that it felt like it separated me from other kids from the very beginning. You know, I 
I couldn't do things in gym class. I could never think about running a mile or even just, you know, playing a vigorous game of soccer for five minutes. I would be on my knees gasping for breath. And there was at least one time a year when I was in the hospital for asthma. And that was every year as I was, um, as I was growing up and really until college when I finally made an effort to try to beat it myself. That must have been, first of all, I mean, just just as a child, like you said, just you have child, you have a child that you have children, right? Yes. Yeah. So, so just kind of going through seeing kind of their vulnerability, you know, as, as so young and so little. I have I don't have asthma. I have allergies, really, really bad. But I've gotten the the wind knocked out of me, and just you know, for that momentary, you know, it's just a second. It is so terrifying just looking for that next that next breath. Yes. Yes. That, oh, that's incredible. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, and that really stays with you. You know, there are times now as an adult, right, where even swimming activates it for me. If I go underwater, I'm I'm petrified that I'm not going to be able to draw that next breath. But to leave you with a happier memory, and since this is about overcoming obstacles, you know, so I so I get to college and I am somebody who truly has never worked out in her life because I was used to doing something for five minutes and then being overcome with asthma and having to be taken to the hospital. But I I was determined, mostly for vanity reasons, but but also for health, to to get into shape. And so that summer, after my freshman year of college, I had my inhaler. And what I would do, Stephanie, is I I decided to start training my lungs. But I didn't want my parents to know because they worried about me. And so I would basically at night, right, they would go up to bed and I would sneak out of the house and I would run a block. I I would basically run until I got asthma and I would use my inhaler. Okay. Then it was two blocks. Then it was four blocks. And gradually I built up to the point where I could run a few miles I could work out on the exercise bike, and I'll never forget, this is the memory that stayed with me. A few years later, I'm in New York City, and I'm running the lower loop in Central Park. And I'm there, and I'm, I'm running around the lower loop, and all of a sudden I realize, Stephanie, I don't have my inhaler in my right hand, and I was okay. That was the moment that I realized like, I did something. Piece by piece, I conquered this fear. And yes, I was, I was in greater shape, and, and that carries its own rewards. But it really was so much beyond the skinny jeans. It was about reclaiming my, my health. And it was about the achievement of saying, I got handed this really difficult condition and I worked hard, and now I'm at the point where I don't have to carry my inhaler everywhere. And to this day, right, I am able to exercise every day and do really vigorous, like, cardio exercise, and I almost never need to use my inhaler. And it's something that really just excites me. Every time I move my body, I still think to myself, what a privilege to do this, and I'm not going to end up in the hospital. How awesome. 
So that is incredible. And I, again, I know, so I know because I have a very, very dear friend who, who has the same, who has this very same um, ailment, who hasn't been able to have this type of strength. And I have seen the sheer panic while skiing, or I have seen the sheer panic when, you know, I haven't used it for a year. Is it expired or just any of those things? So I don't think people necessarily really understand, like everybody goes, oh, asthma. But when you have it so deeply and it really is everything of where is that inhaler, tell me when you were running the lower loop and you realized it. Okay, you realized it. Tell me your thought process. What happened? I first... I panicked. I mean, I really thought I was used to running with it in my right hand. I always had it in my right hand. And in the moment that I realized I didn't have it, I had like a wave of adrenaline, wave of panic. And I immediately assumed that that was going to be followed by my chest closing up. But I kept running and it didn't happen. And as I was running... I asked myself, when was the last time you needed to use this inhaler when you were running? And I couldn't remember the last time. And that's when I realized that holding it was like the training wheels. It was like the crutch. And I was doing it for safety. But the truth was, I had outgrown that inhaler. I knew that if if I taxed my lungs in certain ways, like for example, you would know this, if if you're highly asthmatic and you run in the cold weather and then go immediately into a hot room, that change in temperature is going to set off your lungs. And so I knew that there were extraordinary circumstances where I had to take care, but I also knew that for these regular circumstances, I didn't need that crutch anymore. The biggest thing was the next day when I decided I was going out for the run and I looked at the inhaler and I thought, nope. I'm not going to take it. This time I'm making the deliberate decision. I'm not going out with the training wheels on. I'm just going to run and I'm going to trust that my body can handle it. Truly one of the most awesome feelings alive. I felt like I was flying around Central Park instead of running. God, Alex, I love that. Okay, so, and when did you break this lovely news to your parents? Oh, you know, it's... <laughs> oh, it's that, oh, that. It's the, oh, that. I, you know, that's so funny. I can't remember the precise moment, but I do remember saying something like, you know, so, okay, well, I'll see you later. I'm going to go out for a run. And they were like, out for a run? Like, you, you're going to, you know, do you have your inhaler? You're going to need to, you know, get a breathing treatment. And I said... No, I've been working on this piece by piece, and you're going to see. I'm going to come back in a half hour, and I'm going to be just fine. And, you know, truly the the pride of that, you know, I was an adult by that point, but Stephanie, I felt like a little kid saying, like, I can do this. Just watch me, right? And I did. That's amazing. I just love that. And I love that so many people, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm a crisis expert. And so people get have these crutches with things that are actually really not even that important, but it's their kind of safety blanket or their safeguard. And so I think you having the absolute fortitude and the drive and the will to get through that, Alex, is amazing. So thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. I'm glad it was different. Totally different. I, I know. I mean, you know, here I am. I talk a lot about negotiation. And, and one of the things I talk about, Stephanie, is how that first negotiation has to be with yourself. And I think it ties in so nicely to this example, although I've never told this example before, because 
you first have to have that conversation with yourself that I really, I want something to change. Here's exactly where I think I'm going. And I'm going to take that first step despite the fear, right? I'm going to step out in fear and I'm going to do this anyway. And I, I think that that's so important, Alex, in, in, in negotiating. So, you know, I didn't go to law school, but primarily most of my job, I'm working with lawyers. And I remember them saying to me so many different times, gosh, Steph, you just see things very, very differently. And, and the thing is, Alex, I say no a lot. So clients come to me and they're like, hey, you know, here, you know, will you coach me or will you consult in my business? And I, I say, tell me what your measurement of success is. Like, let's walk through when you will feel successful. And if I get the, or, um, you know, you haven't had the conversation with yourself yet. You haven't negotiated with with your bottom line and, and what you're hoping and willing to change or what you're hoping and willing to kind of get skin in the game. And I just say no because I just felt like you haven't done the work and I'm not going to do your work for you. So that's a really interesting thing. And that kind of takes me to my next topic that I'd love to talk to you about, which is imposter syndrome. So a lot of my clients, and, and mostly female clients, they come into me for a problem or a pain. Maybe they're not connecting with their team. Maybe they want to be a more impactful leader. Maybe they have gotten feedback that their um, emotional intelligence is a bit off, whatever it happens to be. And it's actually very interesting to me because we start down that path and then I kind of take a step back and I ask them how they got there. And I say, walk me through your journey. You know, how did you get there? And it's literally, literally, Alex, it's almost like they're talking in their mom's shoes and their dress. Like they're kind of like, so here's what happened. And you see them kind of shrink and a little bit deflate. And I know exactly what we're dealing with. And I know that they haven't bought into themselves and they're still having imposter syndrome. Can you talk to me about that for you and walk me through what that looked like and tell our listeners how some of the ways that you were able to overcome that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and first I want to say, especially to the women who are listening, that Imposter syndrome, in my view, is often a rational woman's response to the very real messages that she gets from society and the people around her. If you have ever absorbed the message that you're lucky to be there, if you've ever absorbed the message that people say, oh, Alex, you're so good at that job. We need you there. We can't have you do X, Y, or Z. And a lot of it is presented as a compliment. A lot of it is really subtle, but it's there. And so dealing with imposter syndrome is a reclamation. It's taking the power back that you have always had within you and choosing not to be afraid of that power. I have to say that I've dealt with imposter syndrome my whole life, and part of it is because I got messages from men. People would say things, especially, Stephanie, I wonder if you've ever gotten this, people saying things about my voice. I have a really powerful voice. It's a deep voice. And I've had men over the years make a variety of comments on it. The, the most memorable being a, a charming gentleman who gave me some constructive feedback in quotes during law school that my voice didn't match my body type. <laughs> oh, lovely. That's and I fabulous. Right. I remember thinking, wow, you thought that 
And then you said that out loud, right? So congratulations. So what must it be like to have that little filter? You know, so I think there's an element of taking some of that on board and saying, I have to make myself smaller. I have to make myself more likable, more relatable. I need to pad my sentences. I need to hedge my points. I can't quite describe how fabulous I am or how much expertise I am have because that's not going to be relatable. So I've got to shrink and be smaller. You know, but really the watershed moment for me, Stephanie, like I said, I've dealt with this my entire life, but part of the reason I've dealt with it is because I've always been hungry. And deep down, even though I got a bunch of comments, I knew on some level that people were afraid of my power and that if I broke through being afraid of it myself, I was going to be on bigger stages than I could possibly imagine. And so I would have the fear and I would push through. The biggest dose of imposter syndrome I ever got was when I first thought about writing a book. And you look from the outside. Let me paint the picture. I'm in my mid to late 30s. I'm a professor at Columbia Law School. I'm teaching negotiation at the UN and Fortune 500 companies and you know governments all over the globe. But I'm young for my field. And I'm a woman. And part of the place that imposter syndrome can come from is looking around a room and not seeing anyone who looks like you among the experts. And everywhere I looked on all the covers of the books, it was the same guys. And they were all guys 20 years older than I am, usually with some sort of law enforcement or hostage uh, expertise. And I remember thinking, are people going to want to buy negotiation advice from somebody who looks like me? And what got me through that was thinking, who am I trying to help? Who is the person who's receiving my message? And picturing that woman in my mind and then picturing my then nine-year-old daughter and thinking, what kind of world do I want her to grow up in? How do I want her to think about her voice and her expertise? And I decided, what is your stance on profanity, Stephanie? Oh, you can, whatever okay. you need to say. Thank you. I decided to, to <laughs> And your write. sex life is next. Okay, the sex life is next. Great, great. Okay, that's, <laughs> this is amazing. So I decided to write the fucking book because every keynote I did, every time I did a consulting engagement, people would say, this was unbelievably impactful. Where can we go to read more? And I had to recommend one of the same few books written by the same few men and there was a day when I thought to myself, no, no more. I'm not going to do another event where I recommend a book written by somebody else. I'm going to write my own book. I know I have something to say. I don't care if it's my turn. I'm ready. Let's go. And doing that, Stephanie, taking that big bet on myself, big bet, paid off beyond my wildest imaginings. And that now is the success that I draw on every time I doubt, every time I wonder, can I do it? I remember you did that. And it gives me gas in the tank to go the next hundred miles. 
Well, I, and that is so, when you were speaking, I was getting chills, okay, for so many reasons. And I, and I want to make sure I bring this out. You l- nailed so many important topics. So I was very, very young. I was, to be honest with you, I was way too young to be negotiating anything. Um, 26 years old. I was a senior director of a public company. I was the youngest senior director in a public global company than the company had ever had in Silicon Valley. I had no business directing anything at all. They, you know, handed me my PL and I referred to it as a penal. Um, so like, I really just didn't know, but I showed up and I worked really hard and I watched a lot of people and I was very observant. And the one thing I was always really good at was negotiation, but I wasn't good like everyone else. Like I wasn't good, like staunch. I was good with my questions. I was really good with understanding what I was willing to lose before I went into the room. And Alex, you nailed so many points. So I'm five. So at the time, you know, five, three, a hundred pounds, long hair, hardly wore any makeup. Just, I didn't really, I didn't need to take that long to get ready. I just didn't really feel like I was that impressive. So I was just like, I just need to get to work. It's time to get to work. Single mom, you know, little girl, four years old. And I would go in and I would, no one looked like me. There was no woman forget younger woman, there was just no woman. And everybody was 20, 30 years older. And I would say something, which was very, very rare. It was very rare that I would say something. But when I did, everybody would look and they'd go, aw. And then they would get, continue about their business. And I'd be like, I'm like, what the heck? Okay, so hold up. What the hell? Like, No. And then here's the crazy thing. It always got back to that very first negotiation. And so, and somebody, Bob would say it, or John would say it, and they'd be like, oh my God, that's a great idea. And I was like, it's, ridiculous. So the reason why I'm bringing it up is because it's happening so much. And while we're making amazing breakthroughs, it still is happening. And you, and you, you nailed it, Alex. It's those backhanded compliments. It's the buts and the, would you think about, you know, something like this, or it's the niceties and the pleasantries that come in front of it or behind it, instead of just saying what it is. And if you become passionate and you're really, really good, then you're emotional. And if it's a man doing it, he just really believes in this. So it's actually gotten very interesting as time has gone by where I can sit back and and take a look at really what's going on. The fact that you went to Georgetown, the fact that you're a professor at, um, at Columbia, and then you still sometimes have it and you, but I have my book, I think that that really is so inspiring to so many younger entrepreneurs that are coming up and then also to just so many women. So I'm I'm so happy that you shared that. Does it happen very much now? You know, it it does. And here's why. Um, it does because I'm still growing. It does because I'm doing things this year that I haven't done much of before. I'm doing a lot more media and television. And it's interesting. I think our language is so important. And you were saying something like, I had no business being in this role. And that's the programming. That's what you imagined other people saying. The truth is, you did have plenty of business being in that role, right? It turns out, in fact, that just because you can't say P&L doesn't mean you can't run one, right? So, I've had that messaging too, where I thought, you know, people, you know, MSNBC called me up and they said, we need a negotiation and pay equity expert. And I said, I'm your woman. And there was a voice inside me saying, you have no business. And I thought, says who? 
Right. Yes, I do. Right. (laughs) I have every business doing this. And so it's every time I do something new, Stephanie, I just know now this is the old song and dance that my brain is going to do. And so I want to normalize it. If you are out there and you're feeling uncomfortable and this imposter syndrome rears its ugly head, congratulations. You're growing, you're moving up, you're taking on new challenges, and you can still do it. I get it probably now once a month. Every time I'm stepping on a bigger stage, I'm trying something new. You heard it here first. I'm writing another book. Every time I I get that feeling and I hold my book in my hand and I say, nope, I have every business. I'm plowing ahead. And that's it. And I think that's completely amazing. I remember being in a room many, many years ago with a Fortune 100 CEO, and I remember him telling, I I remember hearing him tell his son on the phone, you have no business saying no. You say yes to everything and figure it out on the back end because you're just that good and talented. Every single time you say no, you're doing the world a disservice. And I remember that resident, and, I, and I, he got off the phone and, and I, and he said, I said, how many kids do you have? And he told me, he goes, but I tell my, my boys and my girls the exact same message. If they have somebody giving them an opportunity, that person generally has more experience and they, even though they don't feel like they do, they absolutely do. Yeah. I, I just love that. You know, I, I always say to people that it doesn't matter if there are other people in your field. Right, Stephanie, there are other people in your field. There are plenty of people in my field. You know, you could take the negotiation books that have been written and you could fill a gigantic library with them. And I say to you, it doesn't matter. There are people out there waiting for a message that only you can deliver. And every moment that you spend mired in your own imposter syndrome is a moment that they are waiting. And so, If you feel the call, don't make them wait any longer. Get out and offer what you have. Truly, every time, this is why I do what I do, every time you stand on a stage, every time you claim your expertise, it is not selfish. This is an act of service that shows other people what is possible. And I think that it's so inspiring just for me, just for me, just watching your content, watching it come through. In the last three years, I've said no to like nine speaking engagements. I was just like, no, you know what? Actually, let me refer you. Oh, actually, let me refer you. And the thing for me is it wasn't an ego thing at all. It was just, you know what? They have more experience. Like they have, they've done this for so long. I don't want to disappoint you. I don't want to disappoint your audience. And then literally... I got like whacked over the head. This is our third time we've called you. We want you and we're expecting you on this time. Click. And I was like, (laughs) so you're so right. I mean, it just, it just takes somebody going, no, it's you and you believing in yourself enough to do it. And nobody would say that I was actually hurting for um, any sort of self-confidence, but sometimes it does creep up. It really does. It does. Don't ever, don't turn those engagements down. I mean, I think we hold ourselves to impossible standards. I, you know, I, Remember the first time I'm now a negotiation trainer for the UN. You know, the first time they called me, they called me with two weeks notice because their bigger speaker canceled. Okay. I was a junior professor at Columbia. They had somebody more impressive uh, than me. That person canceled. And so they probably went through the phone book and they're like, who else is out there? They called me. And I remember thinking, gosh, I don't, I don't know the UN system. I don't know the protocol. 
Um, and they said, can you do it? And I said, absolutely. And I figured I've got a couple of weeks. I'll learn what I don't know. I'll learn the UN. Like, how hard could that possibly be? <laughs> right. And and it's true. I assigned a couple of research assistants. I said, you're going to help me get up to speed, and I'm going to take you to the UN, right? And this will be, you know, kind of your reward for this. And I, like you, Stephanie, I felt as though maybe I have no business being there, but that just means I'm going to work really hard. And they were blown away, right? So they that was the beginning of what is now like a partnership that has lasted for many years. But it only happened because I bet on myself. So if there's one message, we have so much more to discuss, but if there's one message I could leave with people today, it's that betting on yourself is going to be the best risk you will ever take. When in doubt, I am always, always putting my money on me, period. And that is so important. I want to I want to talk about that for a second. I don't want to just float by that. When, you know, I've been interviewed for a bunch of different, you know, media things and they always ask me, you know, coaching, well, let's not even get on coaching because that's a whole other topic, but it, there's so many sketchy coaches out there. They always say to me, they go, hey, how do you pick a good business coach? And I said, your business coach needs to be able to easily and openly discuss their failures they need to be able to show you and tell you how they failed. We have all of this like foo-foo stuff and all of these, you know, winning and team spirit, but how have you actually failed? Because I want to understand the measurement of success and I want somebody who's already been down that journey and done it for themselves. And so when you're talking about betting on yourself, it's so important that you're investing in yourself as well to make sure you're the absolute best version of you. Yeah, that's right. You know, and that is... That means, you know, capital, it means time, it means willing to be a learner for life. That's the truth, right? No matter how talented I may be as a speaker, as a trainer, as a coach, I love learning. I love knowing more. And I think that if your coach, if your trainer is a lifelong learner, that's going to be a great partner for you. Somebody who's hungry to know more and is aware of what they know and what they don't know. That's real leadership. That is. And and people say, it's actually really funny that you mentioned that again, Alex, because people go, gosh, you raise your hand so quickly and say, I don't know, or you raise your hand so quickly and say, I blew it. And I was like, doesn't, I mean, in this world that we live in, you can find out if you blow it in one second. I mean, media is so quick. Like, wouldn't you just say, oh gosh, I raised my hand. I messed that up or I blew it. And they're like, yeah, no, people don't really do that. And I'm like, ah, there I go again. <laughs> Countercultural, but but I, I love it. I think that to me says, it, it says that you're really secure. And, you know, somebody who is secure enough to say, here's the mistake I made, here's what I'm learning from it, and be able to stand up. What a model of excellence. I think, if anything, you know, some of our organizations are suffering because people aren't secure enough or don't feel safe enough to say, here's what I don't know, here's the help that I need, here's the mistake that I just made. And if more people could do that, we'd be so much further, I think, as a society. I completely agree. I believe that if we just raised, I would love to raise it exponentially, but I'm also a realist. I believe if we just leveled up a level or two on just overall emotional intelligence and humility, I believe that we would have just such a different workspace. I just, just it would just be completely different. So talk to me about going from being, I think you're a corporate attorney for like four years, right? Yeah. And then you moved to academia. Yes. 
how did that happen first? Second, how much crap did you get? <laughs> Third, what the hell were you thinking? <laughs> okay, okay, so please clarify the second two questions. When you say how much crap did you get, like from whom, over what, and then what the hell was I thinking? I need to hear more. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So like attorneys are generally, it's very competitive. Okay. It's super, super competitive. And generally when they, from my knowledge, when they leave, they leave after they're going to retire, after they're kind of like, they've really solidly established themselves and they want more of like a cushy job. When you're as good as you are at so early and then you move into academia, are people like going, Alex, what are you doing? Like, are you like, what, what made you decide to move from this to academia? From a peer group standpoint, were they kind of razzing you saying, why now? Like, why don't you wait a little bit of time? And then, and then as far as like, where are you in academia? Like, do they ask you to come back? Do they say, gosh, Alex, you're such a fierce negotiator. Come back and do this here for our firm. Oh, that's so interesting. So, you know, I do think that law has changed, Stephanie. I think that it used to be that people would park themselves in a place and they would be there for many, many years and they would retire and then move on to their second act. These days, lawyers, like, like people in a lot of other sectors, there's a lot more mobility. And you know, people start to think about the variety of roles that a lawyer can take over the course of their lives. You know, I have colleagues who are who've been in firms, they move to public service in the government, they do come back, they do stints in academia. It's much more fluid and flexible than it used to be. But for me, I would say I always knew that I loved teaching and I loved the particular area that I was hired to teach. You know, I was trained as a mediator. I was trained in helping people resolve high stakes, high conflict negotiations. And I loved that work from the moment I first encountered it. You know, I first time I ever helped people negotiate a dispute, everybody's yelling at each other in the room. And I kept thinking, damn, I'm relaxed. I love this. This is great. You know, it's not for most people. I'm feeling like I could do this all the time. Oh my God. It's literally like me. <laughs> right? It's the thing. People can be yelling. And Everybody's like, sweating. Everybody's right. sweating. And I'm like filing my nails. I'm like, no. Let me know uh, when you're done. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> this is the most relaxed I'm going to be all day. Right? This is good. So it, it, I think it's because I was born in uh, Brooklyn. I'm used to loud volume. So truly, I had clarity around that. I knew that that was work I loved to do. And I knew that I loved teaching and coaching people. And even when I was at one of the most you know, prestigious firms in the world, the stuff that really lit me up was coaching or training the people who were underneath me, people I was supervising, and watching them go out and soar and you know, reach new levels in their career. And I always say to people, when you're thinking about what you want to do in life, don't pay attention to the job title. Pay attention to the verbs. And by that, I mean, when you are in your flow, when you are feeling at your highest and best, when you're feeling the most joy, what are you doing at those moments? And I knew that for me, those moments were coaching or teaching, and it was helping people negotiate. 
And so when this position came up at Columbia, it's funny, talk about, you know, no business being there. They never confirmed this, but I'm pretty sure I was by far the most junior person in that massive application pool to interview for the job. And I was very clear when I went in, I said, my CV may be shorter, but what I'm longer on is vision and energy. And I have a massive vision for this position and for this program. And here's the vision I'm going to share with you. And that was why they hired me. So it's very interesting. A lot of people at my firm basically said, take me with you, um, because legal academia is in some ways a dream job. It's, it's, it's you know, prestigious. It's, it's very prestigious, right? it's prestigious for sure. And yes. it's supposed to be also a little bit less demanding from a lifestyle perspective. Um, and you're and you're a woman and you're beautiful and you're at Columbia. Like there's a bunch of kind of like and 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 here. Like you weren't going to like mom and pop UC down the street. <laughs> you're kind of kind of a big shot, Alex. Kind of Thank a big you. shot. Well, what's interesting <laughs> is so my colleagues were like, oh my God, take me with you. My boss did try to keep me and I stayed with her part-time for a few months. My dad was unhappy. My dad was a, you know, lifelong lawyer, and it was his dream that I went to work at the big, you know, white shoe firm that I went to work for. And and he felt like I was secure. I was going to make a lot of money. And he really was not happy that I was transitioning to academia. And I said, you know, dad, a lot of parents would be proud that their kid was going to go become a Columbia Law School professor. And he said, you know, I just want security for you. And I said, dad, here's the thing the joy brings security. Doing what I love and what I know I am most impactful in doing is going to lead to everything. And I'm going to be fine. Don't worry. And the truth is, Stephanie, that this job is so fulfilling day to day. And it has also provided an incredible platform for me to now be the accidental CEO of also a really large training and consulting business called Ask For More. And I wake up every day doing what I know I was born to do on this earth and being compensated for it. Is there a better scenario? There really, there is not. And my greatest desire is for people to end up feeling the way about their professional careers that I do every day about mine. That is Awesome. So I think it's hysterical too, because I have never, I mean, like you said, I've never really met another person who lights up for crisis negotiation. It's usually not like that. It's like, why do you do that? Here's the thing. I do it because it makes a difference. Number one, I do it because if you treat people with respect and consideration and humility, and you really understand what's not being said, there, everything is not being said. It's so fulfilling to see, you know, attorneys, especially family law attorneys or, you know, very large crisis attorneys, they're really focused very linearly on the law, you know, just the law, the law, the law. And sometimes an outside perspective coming in from a business perspective, like you said, from a different perspective in saying, let's really kind of get to the nuts and bolts. But I mean, things are flying. Like things are like, yeah. oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's screaming, there's yelling, and I just it's it 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 lights me up. It makes me so happy inside to go. Gosh, this is all going to come to an end very calmly and quietly as soon as I can 
soon as they can jump in. So to see your eyes, like your eyes, like they get like mine and they're like, I got this. Sit back. Right. (laughs) You know, it's so funny. I think everybody reacts differently to that type of setting. I I love the adrenaline and I love, I'll be honest, Stephanie, the creativity and the intellectual challenge of in the moment figuring out what's motivating this person. What do they need? I'll give you one example. Never forget, I'm in a, you know, I'm mediating this case and one person, it was a really high conflict situation, one person stands up and looks at me and says, I could taser him right now. Okay, so imagine this. You get this, right? I could taser him right now. And I'm looking at this person and thinking, okay, what does this guy need? He needs control. And I said to him, you're absolutely right. You could taser him right now. You could taser me. You could taser everybody here. How does that help you get what you need today? Right? He sat down. In the end, it's about when somebody does something like that, it's a power grab. And they're expecting you to look at them and take away their power more. And instead, you hand it back to them and say, let's talk through that decision. And it dissolves a lot of the hatred and the rage in the room. I love that challenge. I love holding up a mirror to people. I love showing them that I can see them and I can help them see themselves more fully, more compassionately than they ever have before. And when you can do that, when you can see people in that moment, it is a powerful catalyst. And people, unless you've been in the room and you've been in the room, it's hard to even conceptualize how much that can change literally everything. The fact that you just said that and you brought it to light is so powerful for me because it's not like, Alex, you know, you can't really have these conversations. Like people look at you like you're crazy if you're just out with your friends and you're telling them this, you're like, why would you ever want to do something like that? Like, aren't you stressed out or, but you nailed it. A couple years ago, I was negotiating something that was pretty similar to that. And we were down to one piece of art and the art was about $7 million that they were negotiating. And the attorneys were going back and forth. It was a 15 month thing. So imagine that, that, that attorney bill, just imagine both sides, this attorney bill for this. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. Okay. And so I'm listening to them argue and I'm like, God, you guys really need more compelling arguments. And then I started thinking just like you, what, what is that? What does she need? I found out, I said, when was the piece purchased? And tell me, walk me through, were you guys together? No, he purchased it for his lover. Oh. <laughs> and so I said, and so I look, I literally looked at the attorneys and I was like, what? Are we really talking now? I'm like, you know what? And we were like, I think on the 52nd floor in New York. And I remember I looked over and there was a crane. I said, I think we should just, you know what we should do? We should just destroy it. Like, we should just throw it out. Like, it'll really, I mean, you guys will be able to take it as a loss. And we should just get rid of it because it's not going to go in your home. It, you're, you've moved on. It's not going in your home. And it's causing, like, a lot. Haven't we spent $7 million in the last year just on legal fees? Yeah, I was about to ask you, did the legal fees exceed the cost of the painting? I'm sure it did. $6.2 million. Yeah. So I said, let's just keep talking about it for another year. And I said, and then I'll take it. Like, I'll take it. Like, we can just do it like that. And I said, but really, I just don't think there's a great, uh, there's nobody's going to be happy. So let's just get rid of it. Like, let's smash it or throw it out a window or something. I can get a permit. I know somebody and I can literally get it done in like 45 minutes. And they were like, he goes, she can have it. (laughs) I love it. And the attorney goes, 
But it's like, don't fight an emotional argument with like facts. Like, did you guys even ask about the piece? Did you guys even have the conversation on why are you holding on so tight? Like 15 months, $6 million, do the right thing. Okay. Do the right thing. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I I think that that we're going to talk shop here for a minute, people. So, you know, lawyers, I don't believe that most lawyers are unethical people who are focused on their fees. I think it's more a limited view of how we see problems, right? And it's it's about what's it going to take for me to be competent as a lawyer. And the way we see competence too often is by narrowly focusing in on the legal arguments and thinking I need to bludgeon these to death until my client wins, in quotes. Yes. Right? But but what does winning even mean? And right. Did you even ask your client what the win is? Yes. Win, how are we winning? And it's going to be different or they wouldn't be getting a divorce. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, one of the things I do in my negotiation class, Stephanie, is I we play a card game where people battle to win points. And at the end, somebody will inevitably like cheat or do something unethical to like win a big amount of points. And then we look at the tally and I say, congratulations, what did you win? And that's when you see the look of like crisis on their faces as they say, I don't know, I won points. And I'm like, that is the point, right? That is exactly it. That's it. We have to be thinking at all times, like let's zoom out. What is the goal that we are actually trying to achieve here? How is it that I'm going to get the best result for my client? And it all comes down to, you know, Stephanie, figuring out the right problem to solve. And my role as a mediator, it's interesting. I'm legally trained, but what the value I bring is looking at the beginning of the dispute and saying, this is not a legal dispute. We all know what kind of dispute this is. This is a relationship thing. You know, you had an affair, right? You're, you bought this for your lover. This is not about the painting. We all know what this is about and what has to be solved. And you, without a legal degree, came in and in a few minutes cut through that in a way that helped shift people's perspective. It's really powerful. Yeah. And I, and I, I think that it was powerful and it was really nice. And, and really at the end of the day, Alex, it just provided relief because I knew what the, the best outcome needed to be. So I don't, I don't think, like you said, I just don't, it's, I don't think that they're bad people. I don't think attorneys are bad people. I think that they're very linear in their views. And I think that they don't really ask, you know, how do you ask your client? What's your best measurement of success or what's your very best outcome? A divorce, right? Like that's the very, getting as little out of my pocket as possible, right? Maybe not, you know? Right. I mean, maybe success means that you're able to close that chapter and move on to the next, right? Privately, and, and privately without media. Without media. And, and sometimes, Stephanie, the painting, right, is not just the representation of the affair or the extra lover. Sometimes the painting is the last thing before the That's divorce. It, holding them together. Holding yes. them together, right? Yes. And yes. When that painting gets let go, the relationship is let go. And so part of negotiation is honoring that and being there for people, as they say, a dignified end and a dignified goodbye. Yeah. And that's exactly what it was. Again, you nailed it. So before I wanted, before we we move on to the next little phase, because I know we're running out of time and I want to be really respectful of your time, ask for more. And I was reading, and I want to talk about negotiating backwards. Talk to me about that. 
Yeah. Well, you know, I guess you could consider it backwards, but really you're starting from the problem you want to solve. You know, we, we talked about this just now, but when, oh, hold on. Let me, let me go back. I need you to clarify the question. When you say negotiating backwards, I was thinking about problem definition first. Can you tell me what you were asking and then I'll yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so I wanted to talk to you really about how you learned to negotiate backwards. So basically, I, th- I think essentially what I'm asking is putting the problem first or looking at the problem in a different way. Most of the time when you're doing mediation, you you don't handle it this. Or in my experience, people haven't handled it the way you've handled it. The information I've gotten about you and, and in trying to get to know you a little bit better fast, you know, as quick as I possibly can— you negotiate backwards. You put things in front of you that are very different than most lawyers do. Can you just talk to me about that to give our audience a perspective of negotiating, I I say, kind of properly and fairly? Yeah, absolutely. So I liken negotiation to paddling a kayak. And I think a lot of us want to just get in the kayak and start paddling. When people come to me for negotiation help, you know, they've got a dispute they haven't been able to figure out how to close, they come to me and they start talking about, okay, solutions, right? So um, we're only willing to pay this amount of money and we need you to get them to do this and blah, blah, blah. And I back up and I start talking to them about the background and they look at me and they say, well, respectfully, professor, when are you going to help us solve this? And I look at them and say, solve what? That is the whole question. If I help you figure out the correct problem to solve, we are spending time to save so much time, money, heartache, et cetera, on the back end. So I'll give you a couple of examples. I I got a call from a company during the pandemic and they said, Alex, you know, we need your help actually for um, sales and messaging. So an entire segment of our business disappeared during COVID and we're running short on revenue for June. We're raising another round of financing later in the year. We have to make our numbers. We need your help messaging to the entire Rolodex to make up the revenue for June. And I said, hold up. I knew that they were expecting me to say, okay, so here's how we're going to craft the message. And I said, no, 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 hold up. What is the problem we are trying to solve? Are we trying to bring any revenue from anyone in the door in June? In which case, yes, you can blast the Rolodex. But let's play this out. What happens if those folks are not your best long-term clients? And so they drop off and then we're doing this all over again for July, August, and September. Or are we trying to pivot you? Are we trying to figure out your best long-term customer base? Because if that's the problem we're going to solve, then I'm not helping you blasting the Rolodex. I'm helping you do targeted pitches to 10 people. When you figure out the problem that you are solving, that is the equivalent of you get the kayak, you put it in the water, and you look ahead and you're saying, all right, there's my beach. That's where I'm going. And then everything else, Stephanie, is just tactics. The other questions we ask, the things we design, the messages we craft All of those are in service of solving the right problem. The other example that I love to talk about, and it's one that I talk about in Ask for More, is this, is the iPhone. This is only in my hand today because 
Steve Jobs realized initially he had solved the wrong problem. So flashback many years, the iPod is launched. Like, do you remember that when we actually had a device that we would use? I yes, do okay. remember that. So I do. He, everybody's got the iPod. It's a huge success. And Steve Jobs gets very unhappy. Why? Because he watches as people take their iPods and they put it into their giant bags along with a Palm Pilot, a BlackBerry, and all of these other devices with things that people would lose for all these different functions. And in the face of this apparent success, he looked at himself and said, I have solved the wrong problem. The right problem was not how can people listen to music on the go. The right problem is what's the one device that does everything? And that question, that problem definition is what led to the innovation of the iPhone, and that's what leads to innovation in any field across the board. Incredible. Do you fire clients? Oh, that's interesting. I would say I screen on the front end. I am, and I have grown increasingly clear, laser you know, focused on my message my desired client base, and I am very upfront about the type of partner I am and who I work with. In fact, these days, I think with clarity of messaging and positioning, I even have to do less screening than I used to because the people who are meant for me will find me. I think, you know, the greater battle, it's a little bit less about like firing clients and more about setting boundaries. So a lot of times, I'm sure you've seen this, you've experienced this, you've coached people through this. You get, again, it's all very nice. You get a client who loves you and they're like, you know, I know we have this contract and could you just do, you know, A, B, C, D, and E. And then it's, you know, so for example, I do a speaking engagement for a lovely client, right? They pay me my fee. I've delivered, I've more than delivered what they asked me to do. And then they send me 10 follow-up questions, you know, from business unit leaders, each one of which could be the subject of a major talk on its own. And I have a boundary issue, right? And so I write back and I say, oh, these are incredible questions, right? Your folks are so engaged. I love it. So this first one is quick. Here's the answer. The rest of these would make for a wonderful follow-up keynote. Give me a call and let's talk possibilities, right? It's positive. It's collaborative. You didn't say no. Right. And you and you answered the first bit and you were very gracious with your time. Now let's rebook because I have other things to do. And you have to show up and give them the same presence as you do all of your other clients. Absolutely. So tell me about you. Are you a firing Ninja, what's your strategy for boundaries? No, I'm going to say no probably 80% of the time because they don't align. And so, so thankfully, I'm able to be in this position after years and years and years and years of hard work. I, I say no more than I say yes. And it's not an arrogance thing. It's an alignment thing. Um, you Again, I just, I feel so incredibly grateful to be able to have you on the show because everything that you're saying is so aligned. Whenever you have to back a client up because they're asking you for your expertise in this and then you t- take a step back, what problem are we trying to solve? Is this the correct audience? No, 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 just blast the audience but you don't understand the other 80 problems that you're going to create for yourself. And then you're going to be frustrated and it's going to come back at me because I blasted the message out that you asked me to do. 
Let's figure out the best outcome. So much more like you, Alex, I think I just do a really good job screening now. That becomes a little blurry, especially around referrals, because I get a lot of referrals. I get a lot of times people ask me to collaborate and they'll go, I'm working on this massive deal. And it's, you know, it's a $5 million deal. And the smallest deal I've ever negotiated is 50 million. So I'll help and I'll I'll try to be very gracious with my referrals, extremely gracious, because that's where your business comes from. But I've gotten a lot better. You know, I have four kids. Like I have like a lot going on. Nothing is worth taking time away from them. And I will never work harder than my client does. Yeah, that's, I love that, right? I think boundaries with time and I hate the term work-life balance because it it reminds me of like a a waitress carrying like 10 plates and like ready for one to drop. I prefer to think about living a rich life, a full life. And when you talk about having children and having time for rest and replenishment and the activities that bring you joy, these are all components that are necessary as part of a life. And it doesn't benefit your clients or benefit anyone if you are pouring so much into one area that you can't give enough to the other areas. I do want to reflect something back to you, if I could. I found it so interesting that when you were telling me that you say no 80% of the time, you said that, and then almost immediately you got an apologetic look on your face and you told me, you know, it's not, it's not an arrogance thing, Alex. And I didn't think you were arrogant, Stephanie. And you know, you you told me, you know, I'm I'm so blessed to be in this position. Here's the thing. You worked hard to get to the place where you can and should say no to 80% of the things that come your way. And I'm always so interested when people reach that place. And then I wonder if there were people in the past when you said that who looked at you you know, as though you had said something arrogant. And I want to reflect to you that there is nothing arrogant that's factual. And it's something that truly a lot, you know, as you get more senior is natural. And to the extent somebody's not there yet, they should aspire to be there. So if, if Thank you, you were for right, that. like I, if we were hanging out as friends, I would say. Honestly, no, no. I I think that, so first of all, I love that you called that, number one. Okay, number two, you are right. I mean, I have gotten really harsh, mean, nasty. I've also had people walk in my door and and I and I've said, you know, I'm slammed. Like I really can't. And if you can't wait for three or four months, which it doesn't look in your current situation that you can, let me refer you to somebody who's amazingly competent. It wasn't an arrogance thing, but they wrote me this scathing email. And then they came back with a personal $1 million check and said, maybe this will change her mind. And not only that, not only that, then they wrote about me in an op-ed saying that I had gotten too big for my britches and et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, britches? What? I just said no. Like it wasn't even, I mean, it was, it got so big so quick. And so I, I do get a little apologetic about it because it's it's really not an arrogance thing. It's about serving. And, and I don't like to just meet expectations. I love to exceed expectations. And I, I love to be the thought leader and top of mind, but I won't do it at the risk of my responsibilities elsewhere. And so you're you're right. And, and then when you said that about work-life balance, I mean, Alex, I don't know if you've seen it. I, I've said it a million times in interviews. That's total crap because that actually means that every single thing in your life has the same amount of weight and it doesn't there's work life harmony where something is 
way important right now, less important tomorrow, more important next week, but there's not going to be a balance in it. And if you think that, I think it's crap. It, it is utter crap. And, and the one of the most helpful things anybody ever told me was, when you're thinking about the mix, the harmony, whatever you want to call it, don't look at it over the course of a day or even a week. Look at it over the course of a year. Because you're absolutely right, there are ebbs and flows. There are times when I'm in the middle of, I'm finishing up a book, I've got a massive project I'm working on, I'm in final exams, and I am throwing myself into my work that week. And I give my family a kiss, and I go back into the office, and that's what's happening that week. And then the following week, I'm playing hooky for a day, right? And I'm taking my daughter into New York City. And so I try to give myself a lot of grace, but I also try, especially with my daughter, to message to her about what mom is doing. I want her to see a woman who is out making her dreams come true, working hard, unapologetically on things that she loves to do. And I think truthfully, that is more valuable to your four kids, right, than anything that you could say to them. But I do want to go back. I'm so glad you told that story about that unbelievable response you got when you said no. And I, I want people to imagine, I want people to imagine the reaction that might have been generated had you been a man. I just, I want us to imagine the idea of a man saying no, or not even no, but a man saying, here's what I have on my plate. Here are your goals. There's not a match. Let me find somebody to help you. Because to be clear, that's not a no. That's a, let me help you solve your problem. Let me spread the wealth. Let me bring value to you by connecting you to somebody who's going to be a fit within my sphere of influence and within my network. All of that is valuable. Not only that, but somebody you never would have had access to. Like somebody who would never have even paid any attention to you, but I literally texted him. He called me back in five minutes and said he would see you tomorrow. So you're right. It wasn't a no. It was a, I, I don't, we're not aligned. Like I, I just don't, we don't have the, the problem he didn't have outlined. And quite frankly, I had just signed three new deals and it was, it was, this was very, very important to me to hand him over to somebody who was extremely competent. And I mean, it was Ugly. <laughs> Ugly. And, and you yeah. know, you know rationally that that's all about them and not about you, but you still carry it with you. And so that was the look of apology that flashed over your face where you told me that you said no to 80% of the stuff. And then you thought, I better walk that back. I better let her know that I'm not coming from arrogance. I'm coming from service. And so I'm saying right here, right now, you never, ever need to apologize for that ever again, because everything that you have told me on this podcast is about living a life of service, spreading abundance to many people around you, serving the clients, serving the people in your network, and serving the folks that you're working with so that everybody's highest good is being met. And there is nothing to apologize for in that. Instead, I celebrate you. And to everybody listening to this, I hope that one day you are at that place with a large network of people and with many more clients than you can handle and that you are then able to play matchmaker in taking the ones where you can serve and outsourcing the rest. The world should be so lucky.
Oh, Alex, thank you so much. That is just so amazing. And I sincerely am so happy to have you on. And I want to I want to do a follow-up. I want to have you back on. And I would love, love in the future to work on a project with you. It would just be so fun. And I would just be excited to do it and just be able to spend time with you and learn from you and, and just, just have a great time. Awesome. Well, you heard it here, folks. Uh, you heard it here first, folks. We're going to collaborate I look forward to it. And thank you truly for facilitating a conversation that's been totally different. I've done dozens of podcasts, and this was a conversation like no other, both in terms of the topics we covered, but also the the richness with which we explored them. And I just want to say how much I value that as your conversation partner today. That makes me so happy. Because because really, that's what I was going for. I just didn't want it to be like, oh, I've heard this so many times. I wanted it to be so different, so conversational, so kind of back and forth. And you made it just such a pleasure and so easy. So thank you so, so much, Alex. Thank you. And I'll see you soon. Yeah, that sounds great. Thanks for listening to Spin It. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to hit the subscribe button to be notified when a new episode is released. The best way to support the show is to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you want to hear more from me, hop over to Instagram and follow me at Stephanie Malik. That's Stephanie with a Y, S-T-E-P-H-Y-N-I-E Malik, M-A-L-I-K, or visit my website at stephaniemalik.com.